All these nuances that no one realizes when you just watch it on the telly, it looks seamless. And oh, I should of course. say, ah, watch it on the telly. There's no para coverage of athletic <laughs> <Catholic> discus. <laughs> Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I was exposed. To what? COVID. No. Well, it was at the doctor's office that I was at, so I don't actually know if I was exposed, but I got to go get tested today. Oh, jeez. But I think of it this way. This is the first time I've had to get tested. Oh, well, from an exposure, which is pretty darn good. Unfortunately for my daughter, it's like her 20th test. Oh, man. (laughs) She's had that Q-tip shoved up her nose so many times. It doesn't sound fun, but I guess it's, you know, quick enough. I hope so. We'll find (laughs) out. I'll let you know. Yeah, I mean, we're totally asymptomatic, but we just don't want to go wandering around having had possibly... Right, right. Exposed. You know, if I ever have to get tested, maybe I can ask them, can you just poke my brain so it functions a little bit better? <laughs> that would be nice. And I'm wondering what else they're going to find up there because I do still sound like I'm smoking a pack of menthols and screaming at my 47 children all the time. <laughs> I just, I don't know what is going on. So, I mean, I assume it is January, so that is what is going on, but. You never know. All right. Well, let's give your voice a break and dive into our interview. We're talking with visually impaired Paralympian Ness Murby again. Ness competed at the 2016 Paralympics in the sport of discus. Last week, we talked with him about competing as a visually impaired athlete. So if you didn't get that conversation, be sure to go back and listen to it because it's really fascinating. And this week, we're talking about how para discus works. Take a listen. Okay. Well, let's talk about competition and talk about discus. What is a discus made out of and how heavy is it? So a discus can be made out of many materials. You've got like um, standard uh, steel rimmed with ABS plastic plates on either side. You can also have fiberglass plates. You can have wood plates. You can have the entire disc made out of metal. And that uh, affects the weighting of the discus because you can also have a discus that is more centrally weighted or having a higher rim weight. And these are things that um, you'll pick depending on your throw, whether you want more of a spin, less of a spin, whether you're a beginner thrower or an advanced thrower. But there are set um, parameters for how uh, thick the discus can be and its diameter according to your sports class. And that comes down to the gender binary as well as age groups, as well as in parasport, your classification. So in my class, we're throwing one kilo discuses. Okay. And then discus, you stand in a circle. What are the rules regarding the circle where you're allowed to stand, what, where, where you can't go? So when you walk into uh, the cage, which is the area around the circle, when you walk into the cage, anything's quote-unquote up for grabs. You can, you can walk anywhere you like. Once you step into the circle, now these are standard rules. I'll go through the standards first and then I'll go through the adaptations. Once you step into the circle and you're preparing to throw, you may not exit the circle or it voids the throw. Um, You may not step over the front of the circle. And when you have finished your throw, you have to exit out the back. Now, when I say that you may not step out of the circle, that actually comes down to the very specific rule that you may not touch the top of the circle. A discus circle is inset, and if your shoe happens to be slightly you know, further than your toe and it tips up at the edge and it touches that, that top, that rim of the circle, that also voids your throw. So there's a lot of technicalities in that. You also may not leave the circle until the disc has landed. 
So you have to be able to steady yourself and, and stay in there until you've seen that you've been given the signal, the disc's landed, and then you exit out the back. So quite quite technical. You wouldn't want to uh, make a, a, any sort of faux pas, which um, you know in my initial days of shot put I did, but uh, I was very very lucky that uh, it was a competition in Japan, and those competing against me actually took the time to try to explain the rules to Eva and I that when you throw a shot put or in any circle we found out you may not step out the front of the circle. It's a steep learning curve. <laughs> Before entering the cage. There's also rules around when you are called and when you're allowed to pick up a discus and when you can get prepared and being given, you have to wait for your name to be announced so that you can walk into the circle and you're given a time limit of how much time you may have. Now, going into adaptations of that, as an F11 thrower, Eva will actually guide me from wherever I am outside of the cage area in the designated space. We will walk up when we're told that we're coming up. They, they announce who's throwing and who's next and the equivalent of who's on deck. And so we'll go up and get closer. Eva will retrieve the discus off the rack for me. Um, I can hold the discus. And when it's our time to go in, we wait for the name. Eva walks me in. Eva gets me set up inside the circle, orientates me to where the back is, helps me work out that I am knowing where the front is, because it's not actually just as simple as, here's the back, work it out. You know, sometimes uh, I'm off. And then I will hold my position with the discus whilst Eva leaves the cage. Once Eva leaves the cage, the official will announce that I'm allowed to start my throw. And the rules have been adapted from uh, having 60 seconds to having 30 seconds to release the disc. I believe they are reverting back to, to 60. Uh, I do apologize. I didn't uh, quite confirm that. Uh, but it's always good to, to be prepared to throw in the shortest amount possible. 30 seconds is a really short time. So you've got 30 seconds. I have to make my, my discus movement, my spin, my release within 30 seconds. If I get disorientated in the circle, I may stop. I may put up my hand. They will stop the clock. Eva can come back in, reset me up, leave the circle, and I have whatever is left on the time. So it's really important to have a good rapport, to, to be, have a repeatable technique. Oh, and once I have released the discus, then I'm waiting for the, the cue down, and Eva will then be permitted to come into the, the cage, but she is not permitted to touch me. She has to vocally direct me out of the circle. If she is to make contact with me, that voids the throat. Huh. That's interesting. All these nuances that no one realizes when you just watch it on the telly, it looks seamless. And oh, I should of say, ah, watch it on the telly. There's no para coverage of epileptic <laughs> <and> discus. <laughs> I would think you it would be very easy to get disoriented in the circle. Like, that would take a lot of practice not to lose your place. H how do you not lose your place? That is exactly what is a huge, huge struggle. So techniques will range from anything from a standing throw to a full spin. I personally do not do the full spin. And part of that is because of the disorientation factor. And part of that is also because I have uh, damage to my, my left leg from playing blind cricket, putting a wicket spike through the side of my knee. Oh my That's another story. So in terms of, of that, when you're, you're working out orientation and what an athlete's tendency to do is. So what we have practiced a lot is trying to work on when Eva lines me up, she's giving me an indication of where I need to set my right foot. And in training, we spend a lot of time trying to repeat my first step, learning how my body feels when I'm moving. And yeah, this is a lot of trial and error. I have actually wiped out in the circle. As amusing as it is, it's not so much so when you're cracking your head off the pavement. And that's you know, it, it's part of learning. I think everybody has 
their you know their their, their kryptonite their obstacles to to overcome and that one was really hard for me so what we also were able to um recognize is that for me to maintain balance i needed to have doms and doms are delayed onset muscle soreness and that's because it, it, it translates through my events um, from understanding where the horizon is, the back of the circle, which way is forward, is my shoulder dropping or level? And this comes about by being able to relate to my biomechanical feedback. So for me, having some DOMs um, to compete optimally is really important because in training and during taper, I'm always going to have sore muscles. So a lot of athletes don't touch weights pre-competition. But I do because that really helps me to have a sense of my body in relation to to the space, to, to time and space. And it takes a lot of adapted work to create that repeatable movement. And if I'm too loose, I'm going to have greater flexibility in, in my, my hips or my arms going to whip too much. And I'm not going to get the same feedback from that. Also, in terms of um, orientation in the circle, a huge factor is noise. It is, or I'm going to say it was, my nemesis. Uh, in terms of noise, um, you know, it, everything happens uh, when it's supposed to. Timing is rarely perfect, but, uh, you know, usually uh, an incredible growth opportunity. I had my first experience of stadium noise when I entered the Rio Stadium and never experienced it before in my, my life. I'd read the rule book, uh, VI events, uh, uh, they ask for silence. So, and, and when you're competing locally or, or even at um, you know, Grand Prix events, uh, the, the circles are outside or even away from the track. So I'm here to tell you that inside a stadium with you know vast numbers of spectators who are just like fueled up and raring to to drive you on that noise is is definite deafening it's like being in a wind tunnel it just it not only like pushed me backwards but it also whipped my my voice away eva's voice away and um orientating through that was i am proud uh, to to say that I recognize it was a disaster. <laughs> I am very proud to be a Paralympian. I have learned a lot on the journey, and that kind of noise without preparation is, in fact, a disaster. Um, I'm sure you know someone said something about how many light bulbs and um, to, to finally come up with a with a design that works. So I actually ruptured an eardrum, and uh, I lost 10% of my hearing in my right ear. Um, so that certainly changed how I orientated and how Eva, Eva orientates me um, within the circle. We now don't just use audible cues. We use a lot of hand gestures, touches, you know, her foot uh, kicking against my, the outside of my foot to know where I'm lining up, those sorts of things. And you know, in trying to meet that moment as we go forward, that's also changed how we train. Eva and I use squash courts so that I'm sub subjected to um, echoes and um, really loud reverberations um, just of, of noise. If you try you know, throwing a, a slam ball down, a med ball down in a squash court, yep, that creates a lot of noise. Also, we have uh, negotiated access to a throwing cage that is right on the corner of a, a main road. So, you know, following that, that distracting traffic noise. And we did spend some time previously um, competing on the, the Grand Prix circuit, um, which is the uh, para um, equivalent of the Diamond League, so that we could get um, experience in, in other closed stadiums. There still weren't as, as much of um, an audience, but I can tell you that competing in, in Paris with a brass band right behind the discus cage really helped um and the other thing is we started incorporating earplugs which you know is a challenge in itself it's sort of the last resort because as a as an f11 um i don't like being totally deaf so you know you, but working out ways to be able to, to be able to adapt through it it's it's certainly a a growth process and as you can imagine 
so many um, facets and, and, and calculations and, and thoughts that go into this final result. That is three throws. And if you're lucky to be in the top eight of those three, three more. <laughs> and that's what it comes down to in terms of a lot of the external eyes. And, and for those of us on the journey, I can tell you that what happens in the stadium is so much more than that day, that moment, that second. It is the character we build on the journey. I have to ask, because you stand, where does the momentum all come from? Because when, when we see discus athletes do the spin, a lot of the momentum for the throw comes from that spin. So what do you do to increase your distance and where does the throw come from in your body? Yeah, that's a really good um, good question, and I can say that I had the same one when I started because uh, <laughs> I knew nothing <laughs> about discus, knew nothing about javelin either, um, knew a little about shot just uh, by my assumed, you know, pick up something heavy and just throw it. That was really wrong. Do not assume things. So in 2014, when I was first handed a discus and, and told what to do with it, I, I had the very same question. <laughs> So how it works is um, you don't just stand still and release. You're using all of the levers within your body to execute that force. So when I say that um, some people do a standing throw, you actually will wind. You'll have your, your feet in, an, in a set position, but you're winding your body back and then, um, I guess, slamming the hip forward, opening up your torso, and then whipping your throw arm. So personally, I actually do a, a part rotation. So, and in that, you're actually getting a force coming through movement as well. And uh, what happens is you're going to be working on acceleration through this very small split second of time with a lot of tightly wound force. So my right foot will take its first step that spins me a halfway into the center of the circle. And from that, I'm then changing feet to drive my left leg back towards the front of the circle. Then I'm turning my hip and then I'm whipping my left arm that's called a block arm. And with all of that force combined, it is actually driving my long extended throwing right arm forward. And that's what works together to create this, uh, if you will, this, this elastic pivot point of movement. In a sense, like it's good, strong thighs, good abs, strong back, strong shoulders that really help make your Yes, throws? and I think, you know, uh, whilst you're at it, why not say that, that throwing is pretty much a whole body sport? Uh, little did I know. When I first started, I thought, I'm a powerlifter. I can, I can throw things far. Yeah, it really requires agility, power speed, and essentially a good core. I cannot emphasize how much core work goes into this. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I've had to learn to really respect my core because um, it, it does a lot for the turning, for the you know back injuries, those sorts of things. And also in terms of when you're talking trajectory, you know, imagine this, that you're, you're turning kind of like a corkscrew that is trying to get a wider orbit as well as faster at the same time. So you're wanting to start building that momentum, building that angle, and you've only got two turns, effectively, to do it in. And that's where you need to have that fast reflex, you know, the fast twitch muscles as well, because that's what's going to fire it. If you throw a discus when you're feeling slow or sluggish, compare it to the same technique the next day where you've got fast twitch, you're going to get meters on that discus, you know, beyond what you did the day before. And you may hit an official. <laughs> well, hopefully not. Um, but hopefully that they would be willing to accept the trade-off if it was a personal best and potentially a medal-winning record. I'm just, you know. 
Yeah, so what is the, okay. the visually impaired learning curve when you're when you when you're learning the sport or trying to improve? Yeah, um as a VI and learning these throwing events, it's incredibly hard to learn technical accuracy because there's no one to see it being demonstrated there's there's no way to to feel it being demonstrated the movements have to be broken down as best they can so that i can feel certain aspects and inevitably when you slow down a movement the demonstration is going to be less natural in this form than if it was performed in its split second or if i was able to watch a, a slow mode video so Asking a movement to be demonstrated whilst I'm feeling it also opens up um, this idea of encroaching on people's personal space, both mine and the person showing it, because um, sometimes a movement needs to be demonstrated for me by manipulating my body to, to try and explain to me a concept. You know, one such concept was the idea of a long arm that I thought in discus when you spin, you would want to keep things close to your body. And that's part of what you have to fight with a long arm in discus is to get further with the disc, you need to have a really long arm to build up that momentum. And at the end of the day, sometimes things just can't be translated. So we need to interpret and adapt. And this is also why explicit conversations are vital for understanding growth. Because, for example, my logic told me that to throw a discus outward I needed to stop my throwing arm in front of me, for example, at the, the 12 o'clock um, position and release the disc. How else would a discus go forward? It wasn't until I inadvertently followed through one day, uh, having my throwing arm, like I released, but my throwing arm kept going beyond my left shoulder as I turned, that the conversation actually came out. I explained my understanding, why I had been previously stopping, and my coach said that they thought, um, I just couldn't do it, and so that they'd never corrected me. And that's where, especially in para-sport, we need to be having conversations so that we can really understand where each other's coming from and, and whether it's just a cognitive misunderstanding or a, a physical inability. And that translates through my events from, from everything, you know, understanding the horizon, the back of the circle, um, and the technique itself. Yeah, that's really interesting. And to find find people who are willing to tell you how it's supposed to look or tell you how it, it try to find a way to have you feel how it's supposed to feel. That's very difficult and it takes the right person, coach, other athlete who's willing to to walk you through that. Exactly. This this idea of why we need to be having a lot more conversations is because even with the best of intentions, we might have inadvertently made an assumption. And so having people who are willing to take the time, because it might take me longer to understand a, a concept that's never occurred to me, or to put themselves out there and, and correct me with something that they don't know whether is, is an ability issue or an explanation issue. And I, I think that's also why Parasport is, is this amazing world of, of experience because, you know, 7.8 billion people in the world, we're all individual. You go to Parasport and it's the epitome of the example of individuality. I do not throw a discus the same way as the other F11s in my category. Uh, someone else will will be throwing a javelin totally differently to someone who is next to them or someone in a different class. And so I think it really brings to light that in parasport, it's less common, in my opinion, that we are aiming for the, the sameness, aiming for the emulation of, of there being one right technique. And that's why great para coaches make a huge difference. You talked at the beginning about that whole idea of limiting beliefs, and it's not just people who are being dismissive. It's often, it sounds like, people who are trying to be supportive and helpful, and yet they have these kind of implicit biases that they don't even realize are there. Totally. I mean, this is when we start to unpack, um, you know, the world's orthodoxy. We, we need to be questioning orthodoxy in every avenue of our lives. And so it's not about someone is intentionally causing harm. It's about this idea of somehow 
we've entered into an unspoken agreement that we shouldn't talk about things. And that's where having conversations, I believe, is the only way to, yeah, start unpacking these limiting beliefs, start um, recognizing as well that one person isn't going to be the same as the other. And that also means as individuals, we have to learn not to take things personally. I welcome questions because I would rather have the conversation. I would rather invite the perspective shift that isn't just happening for that person asking the question, it's also happening for me. Because the more that we get um, a plethora of these perspectives, the more we're going to stop categorizing things and entering that that cognitive rigidity of knowing rather than learning. The, the, the worst place I believe we can be coming from is a place of knowing rather than a place of, of sharing and exploring and um, conversing. The one thing that I will say all para-athletes have had in common gallows humor <laughs> the humor about their own differences and and abilities versus disabilities has definitely been consistent <laughs> because jill and i were always we don't want to use the wrong word we want to be respectful and they're like oh no it's fine well <laughs> i'll say i'll say the terrible word first <laughs> like okay <laughs> indeed i mean i think it's it's about really being able to, to laugh at oneself, you know, it's like laughter doesn't have to be disrespectful as long as we keep our intentions. I mean, I'm uh, one of the first people to say, you know, yeah, sorry, I would skydive, but it scares my dog. Um, you know, it's, it's, yeah. Lexington. <laughs> and I will, I, I will jump in front of a truck for Lexington. I, while we were talking, I looked up a picture of him and now he's my favorite dog from Rio too. <laughs> Fantastic. But when you talk about commonalities between people, there's commonalities between guide dogs too, who are so individual. Both my dogs had this really amazing, profound ability to yawn when I'm doing my peak performance, whether it be like the heaviest deadlift, you know, or, or the, the furthest throw. It's like, oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I do Just because they know. knew you could do it. They knew it was all confidence on their part. They're just like, yeah, it's, right. it's fine. <laughs> Nothing special here. <laughs> yeah, you may not know the answer to this, but like when when Lexington can't come onto the field to play and is off in a different field, does he know that it's he's not working and can just like all the guide, guide dogs run around like they're in a big dog park or something? Oh, it's a really good question. Um, so actually, I do keep him in uh, uh, if he's um, if Lex is in the training uh, warm up uh, tent area. I certainly do keep him um, in on duty mode, just in the sense of um, you know we all need to behave well in in public. We do, we certainly don't want uh, Lex thinking it's squeak toy run around the yard time. That being said, when it is off duty time, he's certainly aware. So what happens is. The harness being on and being off is the indication of work time. And not everyone um, will approach it the same way. But in my case, not letting anyone touch my guide dog when the harness is on, because otherwise it blurs the lines. So, yeah, Lex um, uh, is, is amazing. Got his harness on. He'll just stay uh, still, relaxed, calm on his travel mat um, when the harness is on. And if I'm doing something, if I'm needing to, to warm up or if I'm needing to get um, physio treatment, etc. And if he's being watched by someone, I've got him tethered or they're holding on to um, the leash. When the harness is off, however, yes, that... That is the indication of he is free to be himself. And when we're out and about, I will give him off-leash time to run around and play. That dog can go to zero to 100 miles <laughs> in about ooh, 10 seconds. Um, and, you know, it's, it's amazing to, to recognize, like all of us, having the game face, the personalities and the, um, and the code of conduct in different areas. And that's also about respecting other cultures at world events and, and the organizing committee. It's important um, for me not to have 
Lex behaving in, in a manner that might um, encroach on other people's comfort zone as, as they're preparing for, for competition or um, the host countries as they're setting up. Not everybody is as comfortable with dogs, and that's really important. And I don't want to jeopardize access for, for guide dogs in any way. I, I actually want to be increasing the access for guide dogs. So that's where we really need to make sure um, in terms of myself and Lexington that we're actually setting that that good example but uh he he travels with a um a little bed and, and he squeak toys and um he's a furry little uh monkey toy and he the, you know the team loves him um he he comes out uh, as the the therapy puppy when his harness is is taken off and um i think that yeah that's a, that's a, a huge part of of the side of para sport as well well lexington is canadian i'm sure he's always incredibly polite <laughs> oh, uh, he, he certainly is. He was um, born in um, uh, actually uh, Vancouver, Washington and uh, comes from uh, Guide Dogs for the Blind in, in, in Oregon. And I think going from, from that and then coming to, to Canada, he was set up well. Uh, he also knows how to kindly but firmly ask for belly rubs. And I think that's part of the, the therapy dog aspect of him. <laughs> Let's talk about your experiences at Rio. Mm -hmm. So how long ahead of time did you go down there? We actually went to uh, Jouy de Fora first for a uh, training camp ahead of time. Um, I think it was uh, was just shy of um, a week that we're in Jouy de Fora. And uh, then we got into the village 48 hours before my event. Oh, wow. Were you early on in the program? Or was that later in the program? Uh, I was earlier on. And um, uh, I think in terms of feedback and and what works for for my competitive readiness is to have a bit more time as a VI orientating to to new surroundings takes a a lot of mental um, resilience and and capacity. So that was a a bit to take on. That being said, I think the the host country had done a phenomenal job in terms of um, having the village set up and and training venues ready, and um, certainly the spirit of the games was there from the get-go. Did you go to opening ceremonies? No. um, At the time, uh, our athletics team were not permitted to, to attend opening ceremonies. Growing up, I mean, I, I saw the Olympic opening ceremonies and, and the Paralympic opening ceremonies, and I certainly thought of that as being a, a readiness factor, a, a rising of spirit and, and, and a rite of passage. Not everything happens how we imagine it to go on the outside. So it was a shock to me to be told that we weren't attending. That being said, you know, there was plenty of spirit um, within my event. How was competition for you? Because you did get to the second round. The, the competition experience was, um, was a whole bundle of excitement and uh, anxiety and uh, the mix of the new and the first with the practiced and um, uh, the preemptive. Uh, so showing up at the warm-up track outside the stadium before my event, uh, showing up uh, three hours before my event was sort of this the first breath as you step off the the bus that suddenly you realize i realized wow i'm i'm here okay this you know and yet it's quiet you're from from where you're you're getting off the bus and it's not as loud as i imagined but i can i can feel the energy in the air everyone is who is there is there in readiness for some sort of performance. I mean, even the, the, the coaches and the, the, the team staff, everyone is there with a performance in mind of some sort. So this energy that's around you. And I remember sort of being aware of trying to get myself in that, that space. And, and many things come up. So like, you know, coaches are changed. Uh, support staff that are going to be there have been changed. So you're really having to adapt at the moment you know, in a split second and what you thought was going to be isn't going to be. And, and so there's this energy buildup. And after doing warm-ups, you go um, from that into uh, the call room. And that's uh, quite some time before your event. And, you know, you can be in the call room for, for an hour. 
Um, so moving through to that and, and sort of sitting in a, a waiting area, there's, there's nowhere really to move around. So once again, you've moved from this outdoor fresh air space to this room that's sort of beneath to the side of the actual stadium. And again, it's, it's buzzing and it's different and there's these sounds that are going around and you're needing to unpack your, your kit bag that you have with you because everything gets checked, what you have, um, what you're allowed to take on stage. Um, you can't have labels showing. This is where the shades are checked for the first time. Eye patches are applied. You put on your throwing shoes. In our case, uh, it started bucketing with rain. Um, so it was sort of a, okay, yeah, got to get on uh, jackets um, and work out how that's going to go. And then there's this moment of sort of, I would call it for me, a an anxious clarity as we're getting ready to be led into the stadium. And I say anxious because Anxious isn't always negative. It's sort of this this tightness, this this lift, this holding in time. And then there's this clarity of this is where you are representing your country and you are about to walk out. The two of us are about to be Team Canada in front of the world. And we take this breath um, I take Eva's elbow and we start to walk and you're being led by an official at the front and each uh, athlete and sports assistant is, is, you know, sort of uh, equally spaced as we have a procession onto the, onto the field of play. And I just remember hearing from different angles, people cheering, there's races going on. You need to stop and wait. You can't just cross the track. You need to cross in between races and just this walk is also this time where there's a lot, for me, there was a lot flowing through my mind. And we get to our place on the field and it is time to work. And pretty much it comes down to line up what, what's at stake, what's at play, meaning um, are my discuses there? Have they made it through um, the check-in process? You know, uh, the sound is really loud. Okay, what am I going to do? Where's the seating? What's the warm-up? So you start doing this quick check run-through. And then it's game time, and everything that you have worked for is what tools you have to draw on in that moment. Now, watching it on TV, it seemed like there was so much enthusiasm in that stadium from the fans. You talked about the noise, but how was the feeling of it? I'm sure, was that the the most crowded stadium you've ever competed in? Certainly, and I guess I should uh, start with a little tongue-in-cheek and go, you saw my event on television? I'm pretty sure it wasn't televised. <laughs> you know, I, I will well, say, I say here, track and field overall. Yeah, in the, in the U.S., they, they actually showed a fair amount of Rio. Rio was the, like, a big turning point i think in u.s television coverage of how many hours they showed and it's only going to increase over time so the, the oh totally i think there's been a lot of work a lot of voices that have really put in to bring the paralympic movement to the forefront and that's why i say tongue-in-cheek but you're right i think there was also a turning point in 2012 and you know mm -hmm. with with the the british approach to para sport and I mean, so yes, in all seriousness, though, it was the largest, most filled stadium I have ever competed in to this day. You know, world championships have nothing on this. I mean, world championships uh, that I've been to uh, have been anywhere from quiet to reasonably impressive uh, in, in, in London 2017. But Rio, I mean, there's also this amazing, dare I say it, um, South American energy that was sort of the, you've got actual things called noisemakers being shook and rattled and fired off. You've got people screaming. You've got, as I said, the, the, the track athletes running around you. It was phenomenal. And just paralyzing at the same time. <laughs> and paralyzing being the 
I wasn't afraid. I actually was just too busy rummaging through my, my toolbox going, what do I do with this? <laughs> this is great. You know, how, how do I actually uh, pr- perform considering I've walked into this relying on my sound and hearing? Oh, I guess I should have packed better for that one. <laughs> so you, you ended up placing sixth. How did you feel about your performance, especially considering the extra adaptability you had to do with the noise factor? I'm really proud of Rio as an experience for me. So much came out of that. Placing sixth is a phenomenal landmark in the journey that just keeps going. This idea of looking at something and going, wow, I don't know if I've ever been sixth in the world in any sort of para-athletics event. And as I unpacked that, of course, I mean, it, it would be uh, a disservice to to anyone else on their journey to not say there were a lot of emotions. I was certainly caught off guard in that stadium. It was hard to self-regulate and um, have the resilience I went into Rio as ranked third in the world. I came out sixth. And that, in terms of the sporting orthodoxy, told me that I wasn't good enough, according to my inner critic. It's really interesting when you unpack a, a Paralympic experience. I can honestly say that I am really proud of my experience in Rio. It would be doing a disservice if I didn't unpack that further for anyone else who's listening and potentially is, is going through their, their first experiences or, or you know, starting their, their dreams. And that's to say that I went in third and I came out sixth. And certainly the orthodoxy that I understood of sport had my inner critic telling me that that was not enough, that I had failed, that I had let a lot of people down, including my and my sports assistant's team, because that's my part of the teamwork is certainly the releasing of the the disc. And as I've gone forth in, in my journey of sport, what I realize is there is no one moment that defines us. And I certainly am proud to be a Paralympian. The Rio experience was phenomenal. I've learned so much, and it is only natural to have trouble self-regulating in your first experience. And the only thing that I regret is that potentially in that journey of of having so much, um, you know, inner narrative going on, that I, I wasn't present for some of the, the moments during that time on field. But in the big picture, Rio was phenomenal. The games itself, the, the whole um, journey to Rio, what, what happened for the Paralympic movement in, in making Rio possible, it's all part of the story. So, yeah, I came sixth in Rio. I am a Paralympian and... I'm really proud of who I am and who we are as a team. Eva and I did phenomenal. So after competition, did you attend other events? Yeah, actually, um, I uh, am really um, a huge supporter of wheelchair rugby. So that was one of the goals of my to-do list, if possible. And so we went and watched uh, rugby, uh, wheelchair rugby, and the even the to the finals of those. And that was amazing. And that's part of, um, I think, the spirit of the, the Paralympic Games in comparison to sports-specific championships that ability to see i mean as as the motto is to see spirit in motion beyond just our own sport our own discipline and that's phenomenal did you get to go to the closing ceremonies yes uh the closing ceremonies um were my you know obviously being my very first closing ceremonies um were an amazing experience in in recognizing how one transitions from one games to then, I guess, stoking the embers for the next games. So it was really interesting to see that handover happen 
between Rio coming to a close and then that um, that drive, that um, that goal being set for Tokyo with the See You in Tokyo uh, presentation that, that came about at the closings. That was phenomenal. Thank you so much, Ness. Ness and his sports assistant, Ava, have qualified for Tokyo via the world champs, but they have to get through team selection and hopefully automatic selection at the Canadian Nationals this summer. You can follow their journey at tougherthan.com and on uh, social. He's Ness Murby on Twitter and Insta. So when you were talking about Canadian Nationals, I'm looking out my window and there's actually a little snow on the ground. So I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what Canadian nationals in track and field would look like. There'd be snow on the track. It's one of those days, isn't it? It's not that they they don't live in the North Pole. (laughs) Live in Western Canada. (laughs) Why don't we check in with our team, Keep the Flame Alive, and see what they're up to. Welcome to Shukflastan. Speaking of Ness Murphy, he's hosting a series of videos on how blind people can pre- prepare for emergencies. The series is produced by Accessible Media Inc., and you can find it on YouTube, and we will have a link to that in the show notes. thought it was very interesting. At the U.S. Figure Skating Championships, Nate Bartolome and partner Katie McBeath finished seventh in both the short and long programs for a seventh place overall. I got to say, coming back from knee surgery, new partner... Seventh place in the Nationals? Not bad. Not bad. I'll take it. Exactly. Like I'm the one skating. (laughs) At the Tier Pro Swim Series in San Antonio, Mallory Comerford placed 12th in the 100-meter butterfly, 11th in the 200-meter freestyle, 6th in the 50-meter freestyle, and 5th in the 100-meter freestyle. Her 100-meter time of 56.02 made the cut for the U.S. Olympic trials. Yay. So congratulations to her. At the second week of biathlon racing in Oberhof, Claire Egan placed 36 in the sprint, 12th in the women's 4 by 6 kilometer relay, and 28th in the mass start. She's ranked 23rd in the overall standings, and they're at Anthalts this weekend, which is the site for Milan Cortina. So it's beautiful there. I'm very excited. I, no doubt. Claire posted a very funny Instagram video of her using one of those foam rollers Mm -hmm. on her leg. And as she was doing it, the face she was making was such sheer pain. They hurt. Yes. And I can imagine after some of these races, they're harder. The foam roller session is probably more painful than the race. (laughs) And she's probably foam rolling longer than she spends on the sprint course, to be quite honest. It's true. Uh, Speed skater Aaron Jackson is back to training after an eye injury. Uh, That is exciting news, and uh, we look forward to seeing you back on the ice and competing. Chloe Kim has entered in this week's Locks Open in Switzerland after having a season off. She is back competing, and Olympic Channel airs live half-pipe coverage on January 23rd at noon Eastern time. In the U.S. Very excited that she will be making a comeback. Well, why don't we go back in time and have a little Atlanta moment? So, What do you got for us today? So obviously when Muhammad Ali lit the cauldron, that was one of the biggest moments of the opening ceremonies Mm -hmm. in Atlanta. And I came across this article from Atlanta Magazine talking to different Georgians who were there and some of the athletes, but mostly just the regular people, you know, someone working at the swatch kiosk, somebody who was one of the drummers, you know, all their individual memories. And this was from Johnny B. Hall, who is now a retired state trooper, but at the time he was a Georgia state trooper. So this is, I'm going to just read this straight. So this is all a quote. So for a week, I was the only state trooper assigned to Muhammad Ali. When we got to the Olympic Stadium the afternoon of the opening ceremony, I cracked my black Suburban's windows down, and there was that chant, Ali, Ali, Ali. I thought we were going to get mobbed. My job was to stay with him until he had lit the Olympic torch. With the Parkinson's disease he had, I told the officials, I ain't sure he can hold that torch. But they said, give him a shot. I was about 10 feet away from him because if anything happened, I was on top of it to make sure that it got lit. 
but he knew what he had to do. It was unbelievable. I worked so many details over 31 years. This Olympic detail with Muhammad Ali is tops. It's history. My grandkids can someday go back and look at it. Wow. You know, this is such a classic to me of those people you never think about. Exactly. Who play uh, an important role. I mean, because protecting Ali and protecting the fact that he was going to light the cauldron and that wanted was going to be a huge surprise. Right. Right. And he was very ill at the time. The Parkinson's disease had significantly progressed. So he wasn't in public much. No. So seeing him in public, everybody would have known what was going on and to have one state trooper alone. That must've been so amazing. Right. And then when you, when he talks about how, fragile the whole situation was really with having to maybe step in and and light the cauldron if you could that's i hadn't really thought about it but that's a testament to ali and just the mindset where he said okay this is what i got to do we're going to make this happen even though i have this horrible disease so i mean that makes a very iconic moment even more meaningful and knowing that the state trooper was was standing there kind of ready to to catch his arm if he faltered at all Mm -hmm. and just the pressure he must have felt right to take care of muhammad ali but oh good moment we will link to that magazine article in the show notes Uh, let's take a look and see what's going on with tokyo 2020 There are still a lot of stories about whether Tokyo 2020 will be happening or not, and still calls for cancellation from different bodies, different surveys that say the Japanese public don't want the Olympics anymore. Tokyo 2020 CEO Toshiro Moto told the AFP that the games are happening. There's still no discussion of cancellation, but they don't know whether or not they'll have fans. That's the big thing. And we won't know for a couple of months yet. We'll see what happens. Right. Yeah, I think the competitions will happen. Mm -hmm. Will all countries be allowed into Japan? That will be interesting. The U.S. probably being the biggest offender. And will anybody be able to see it? I mean, at the U.S. figure skating championships this weekend, there were obviously no fans and they had the paper cutouts. And that was just, I can't get used to it. It's very weird. It's very, when I watch biathlon, it's very weird to have no fans and still have the announcers announcing and the music playing. So this past couple of weeks have been in Oberhof and you know that they've just got this playlist because as competitors go off, there's different songs that they play, like James Bond themes, Mission Impossible themes. They pull them out of everything to be all exciting. And it's they try to get the atmosphere going, but there's no 25,000 fans to lift everybody's spirits up. So it's What's really been surprising me about watching sports without the fans is I did not expect, because most of the time we're watching sports on TV, and certainly I'm watching almost everything that I watch on TV, even before COVID, Mm -hmm. I I was not big on seeing a lot of things live and how different it feels even watching it on TV. Right. And well, and you can hear a lot of the stuff on the field or you can hear more than you used to be able to hear of how things are working. And, and that's kind of interesting as well. Yeah. I didn't expect figure skating to feel so different. Yeah. One thing that's kind of interesting with this whole situation on who would get to come? Well, I've got a couple of points. One is the Australian Open is having a serious amount of trouble getting people in and bubbled without getting COVID, but people have gotten some COVID that are part of the tour. And that's a real cause for concern when, you know, you've seen other events happen and they've been okay, especially global events in the tennis world. They managed to do it, but I don't know how the Australian Open is kind of getting the worst end of it really but yeah from what i from what i have read players are not following the rules that it's the athletes themselves that are causing the problem right and you have to wonder is this fatigue at this point because why wouldn't you just follow the rules and play because if you don't play guessing you don't make your money so i i don't know it's weird there was an interesting conversation that i was in on twitter 
where there was another BBC article, I think out of BBC Scotland, that was talking about having these games and if athletes or countries, whole countries could not participate, would they be seen as legitimate? And I thought, you know what? Nobody's going to remember that years later. Nobody remembers back in the 50s when there were just a few dozen countries versus 100 to 200 countries that we have now. An, Olymp- an Olympic medal still an Olympic medal, no matter who I needs mean, to participate. We don't, we don't, as we've said before, you know, 1980 is kind of our whole, but certainly nobody questions the gold medalist from 84. Right. I mean, maybe a little bit in gymnastics just because that was so dominated by Eastern, but nobody questions Carl Lewis's gold medal from 84. Right. And you had a huge swath of major countries not coming. Mm -hmm. So, well, I'm glad that it was the BBC that said that (laughs) rather than a U.S. paper because the U.S. is probably one of the countries greatest at risk for not being allowed in. Mm -hmm. And certainly the largest team that would be banned And the only people who would call that not legitimate are the U.S. centric. We are amazing. Right. Except somehow we, you know, can't wear a mask. Yeah, I don't I don't get it. One thing that Tokyo 2020 is reconsidering, according to the Yomuri Shimbun, is the number of athletes allowed to attend the opening and closing ceremonies. So about 11,000 athletes will be there, but they're thinking right now that maybe just 6,000 or so can attend, which is just over half. But they're, they're really concerned about the athletes crowding waiting for hours because we've talked to Marnie McBean and how she's had to wait for hours waiting to line up for the ceremonies. And then once they're on the field, they're all kind of crowded together as well. So it's not the greatest situation. Uh, uh, Oh, apparently before the decision to shorten everybody's stay in the village, IOC was not happy about that idea and about about the idea of cutting the number of people in the opening ceremonies because of the pomp and circumstance and how it looks on TV, and that's where they get their money. And that's such a cornerstone of the Olympics that you have mm-hmm. all these athletes and all these sports from right. all around the world. So I can totally see the I'm even going to have 6,000 athletes in the village for opening opening day, like it's a baseball season. Because I would think if you're shortening the stays – like not, none of the track and field people would be there. Right. Because that's all second week. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess all the team sports would be there because they play throughout. Right. That's true. But you do have a huge swath of sports that don't go on until the second week. So they wouldn't be allowed to even be there. Right. So I'm kind of surprised that it would even be 6,000. And to be honest, that they would even consider 6,000. Right. And even with... Uh, you look at team sports like football and baseball, they might not go because they're scattered around the country. Right. Well. So they're quarant- They're in they're their probably little up baseball where- bubble. Exactly. So. And you know who else won't be there? Who? Marathoners. <laughs> <laughs> Poor marathoners. Up in Sapporo. Yeah, nobody's talking about putting them back on the plane to be there for the closing ceremonies anymore. And that's really about it for news from Tokyo 2020. Everybody's been very quiet this week, just kind of. Which is good because there's only so much I can handle right now. (laughs) Right. It's a rough week in the U.S. That's right. But oh man, hopefully things will get better. But that will do it for this week's show. Let us know what you thought of Ness Murby. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com or call our voicemail hotline at 208-FLAME-IT or Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta and keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Next week, Book Club Claire will be back to talk about World Class by Peggy Shin. So please let us know your thoughts on that book as we go out to music by Archdale. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive.
I cannot emphasize how much core work goes into this.